It's the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast with your host, Jill Riley. On this podcast, Jill explores what faith can look like after trauma. Hi, I'm Jill Riley. I am an author and a minister. I am also a trauma survivor and live with complex PTSD, depression, anxiety, and a dissociative disorder. My prayer is that post-traumatic faith will bring you hope and joy in your own journey. Welcome to Post-Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley, and I am here with my guest today, Norm Welch. Welcome, Norm. Thank you for having me. I am honored to have you. I'm going to read this bio that you sent me. You sent me a a long paragraph, so I'm just going to read it word for word here. Norm was a law enforcement officer for over 25 years, 16 of those as an undercover narcotics agent. He has experienced many critical traumatic events during his career. In 1998, he was diagnosed with an incurable neuromuscular disease that caused the loss of feeling, mobility, and strength in his hands and feet. After over 30 surgeries, he became addicted to opioids. He was later diagnosed with PTSD. Due to his misguided, faulty, and sinful responses to his various trials, Norm made a series of poor decisions that landed him in federal prison. It was during this most intensive, intense trial of his life, with the realism that he was going to prison and may be killed there, he answered the calling of God. Norm had been an agnostic all of his life, but he knew that God was calling him to minister to those who were suffering from trauma. While he was in prison, he obtained a master's degree in theology and Christian counseling, a doctorate degree in Christian counseling, and is a California registered addiction counselor. While in prison, Norm counseled inmates, preached God's word, taught spiritual maturity, and led Bible studies. Norm counseled many inmates who were slaves to their sin. They experienced God healing power and transformation through the biblical principles taught through Christ-centered healing process. Norm was a police academy instructor and is an expert in police tactics, pursuit driving, narcotics enforcement, first responder culture, and PTSD. Norm often speaks to, I lost my place, Norm often speaks to those who are suffering from traumatic experiences and who suffer from addiction. Norm is in the process of becoming an Assemblies of God chaplain. His book is called Christ-Centered Healing of Trauma, Healing a Broken Heart. The book will be available this winter, and you can find him at www.christ-centeredhealing.com or Christ-Centered Healing of Trauma on Facebook. So that was a lot of information with a lot of your life story in one paragraph. So a way to summarize. It makes me sound pretty good, right? Yes, it makes you sound (laughs) great. (laughs) So tell us something that wasn't in the bios. Well, it was pretty much everything in there except for the, the difference that God made in my life. I mean, I I never would have thought that, and nobody, none of my friends would have been able to say either that I was standing up at the pulpit preaching to to a prison um, chapel. They and never would have seen that, huh? Oh no, I was I was opposite. You know, when 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 you do police work or a first responder, all you see is the bad in the world. You see so much death and destruction and and such evil and it makes you wonder how there could be a loving kind God mm. w- with everything going on. So there are Christian um, uh, police officers and firemen and such, 
but I think most of them were in, in my camp where it's, you know, I, I know there's something out there, but I don't know because yeah. I don't see I'm loving God. Yeah. So what was your faith background growing up? You mentioned in your bio that you became an hmm. agnostic, but kind of what was your foundation? Well, basically nothing. My parents identified themselves as Christian, but we only went to church maybe once every two years on Christmas Eve. You know, okay. And that was it. Although I do remember my mom saying prayers, you know, when I was a little kid and in German. And um, I do remember, remember that prayer, but it basically was, was nothing other than just calling ourselves Christian. Okay. Okay. Well, your career in law enforcement, I was, I was really intrigued with that. You were uh, trained in pursuit driving. That sounds like fun. <laughs> it was a lot of fun to teach and I got to do it a lot too. And, uh, but that was a time in the, in the eighties when there was a lot of crashes um, when police were pursuing suspects and they injured okay. a lot of people. So that was a time when the, the cops really needed to have some kind of training on pursuit and don't pursue. Right. Okay. So as a law enforcement officer, you, you held a lot of different roles. It sounds like. Yeah, I did. I, I worked a um, uniform for a long time and then I worked in narcotic detective. And then I actually went to the California department of justice where I worked full time as a, a narcotics agent for okay. 13 years there. Is that more of an investigative role? Yes. Yes. All, all we did was narcotic enforcement. And when I got promoted after a couple of years there, I ran every team that you could think of the violent suppression unit, the, the drug lab um, unit, the regular drug unit. But my favorite was being in charge of the local narcotic task force. Okay. Where it's a multi-jurisdictional task force where the police departments give one or two police officers each to, to work an entire county and the, the Department of Justice would lead that um, uh, task force. So in total, how many years did you spend in law enforcement? 27. Okay. Wow. So talk to me a little bit about your journey to addiction and how that led to incarceration. What was that? Was that a short journey or was that over a long period of time? What happened there? It was over a long period of time. I no, they don't do any training on PTSD, right? In police academies and in-service training. That's they shocking to me that they don't talk about that. I don't know if it's changing now. Um, I'm having a difficult time getting current police officers to speak with me because obviously now I'm one of the bad guys and I'm working hard sure. to change that. But back then it was a three hour block on stress, stress management, eat right, you know, um, sleep good and exercise, but they didn't tell you what it does to your psyche, you know, to, to your heart. And so I, I went through a lot of, of traumatic events. I worked traffic for five years, which meant that I investigated all the, the fatal traffic collisions in the city. Mm. And, um, I took some child deaths and some, some elderly deaths and on patrol, you see the suicides, the shotguns or the hangings and, um, then the violence towards each other, you know, and SIDS deaths, an infant death syndrome where babies were dead. And, um, I took a couple of cool drownings of toddlers. So you don't think of it out at the time, but it really affects your heart. Oh yeah. You I was raised by a, a military father, so I was always taught to bury your emotions and, and never reveal them. And then the police academy, they do the same thing. 
bury your emotions. You know, once you're done with that call, go to the next call. You know, there's no room for crying. There's no room for grief. You just deal with it, you know, and I was good at it. I, I really was. And, but eventually when I, I was diagnosed with this disease, what happened was I was starting to get these big ulcers on the bottom of my feet and I'm not a diabetic, but they're like diabetic ulcers. Okay. And it comes down to a, a disease called Charcot-Marie-Tooth disease, which was complicated by peripheral neuropathy. So not only did I lose all the feeling in my legs, in my hands, but also muscle atrophy in my feet and my hands. Is that an autoimmune disease? Is it something you catch? What is, what is that? Well, it's genetic. And okay. at that time, they weren't willing to go into the testing of why, but it's genetic. So I have two girls now and five grandkids, and I really worry about what's going to happen to them. But there's a lot of testing going on and a lot of treatment coming up. But anyway, what what was going on was I kept getting inf infections since those ulcers were so deep into my feet and I was still going to work. So at the end of the day, I would come home and my socks would be just blood soaked because of the, the holes in my feet. And I didn't think nothing of it because, you know, you just go to work, you know, you're, mm. you're trained to go to work. You don't complain. You don't say anything. You just go to work and you don't tell anybody because if other people think that you're injured, other law enforcement officers, your coworkers think that you're injured, you're no longer safe to work with. Oh. You know, they, won't, they won't trust you. They, they, they'll think that you're wounded. And then that's the same with um, psychological injuries. You know, if you go, if you're known to go to a psychologist, you're no longer that person that they could trust. You're weak. You know, oh, wow. To do with you and you're ostracized. And, and that's one of the reasons why when I was going to court, I mean, that'll come up later. But when I was going to court, that's one of the things the judge said, well, why don't you just seek out help? Well, you don't know anything about the first responder culture. The culture is not so that you can just say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm hurting inside and I attempted suicide. Because if you do, that's it. Your job is gone. You know, so nobody wants to do that. So wow. after I was diagnosed, um, I had to go through 30 surgeries in a 10-year period for various things. Um, infections in my bone, they tried to close up the holes with, um, you know, sutures. Um, uh, broken bones because the bones became brittle. So eventually, you know, my feet are, are all it, pretty much disfigured, I should say. You know, I have a plate and screws in my right foot. So now I no longer walk normal. I walk like flat footed. Mm -hmm. So I trip over things. And I have foot drops. So I have to wear these special braces now, you know, but at that time it was like my world was coming to an end. Right. I mean, here I am this, this tough guy and I'm, I'm, I'm a supervisor. I'm equal to a Lieutenant really. And I'm trying to be a role model. And then what happens is this, this, and now I see my career fading away. Right. So depression sets in. So as this depression set in, I was, probably two, three months at a time, I would just be out of it. I mean, I, I could go do my work and yeah. I could come home, but at home I would just sit on the couch and, and eat. Right. That, that was my, I never drank um, alcohol or anything, but my go-to thing was eating. And my wife saw this changes in me and said, please get help, please. And then of course, you know, like we all do now I, I got this, don't worry about it. You know, mm -hmm. just, I, I'm, I'm okay. Because Tough you can't tell your family, yeah, you know, like I've I've been shot at three times. I can't go home and tell my family, 
you know, oh yeah, today was a, a stressful day. I got shot at, you know, bullets hit my car. <laughs> you know, we can't do that, right? Oh, how was work today? Everything's good. You know, everything's fine. Nothing's, it's a normal day, you know, mm. but, but inside your, your mind, you're keeping this all inside your mind, you know, and, and it, it breaks your heart. So eventually that I was diagnosed with PTSD and they, what, what they were saying is that the, the depression and the, the surgeries kind of made, made the stress of my life really unmanageable And those PTSD symptoms came out from, um, no, I don't want to say dormant, but they were in there and I really wasn't feeling them. So I found that these opioids that they were giving me were helping with my mood, right? My, okay. they, 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 would, they would even me out when I would have a panic attack or an anxiety attack. Um, I, I would, certain noises, certain places or certain smells would trigger me to where I, I would literally have a panic attack. And so I would take the pills instead, instead of for the pain that I was supposed to, I would take the pills more for my mood. Yeah. That's how I eventually, I never thought I was addicted, but now after, after look these years, looking back, I, I was, I was addicted to them. Right. What were you taking? A Vicodin, Percocet. If I could get Oxycontin, they, they were all, I wasn't buying them illegally. Some pills I got from other officers, you know, and not that they were using them incorrectly, but the job is hard on your body, yeah. you know? And um, so there's a lot of officers that are wounded work, you know, wounded working. They're, they're trying to make it through the day, trying to make it through the career as best they can. So some guys would give me um, stuff and my dad would always have a lot and, you know, I'm ashamed of it, but I would go to my dad's house and, and take a bunch of pills from him. But, you know, and that shows you you're an addict, you right? Start stealing pills from your parents, you're yeah. an addict, you know? So I started getting into, um, just a real bad, bad way. I started having nightmares that, um, for work-related nightmares. And I, I, I was afraid to go to sleep. I would stay up all night just to avoid going to sleep. And I would stay up two or three nights. And then finally I, I'd, I'd go to sleep. So it, it was, it was very, very tough. And then the last straw was where my daughter, she was 21 at the time. She, none, my, both my girls are, were adults and living away from home but she got diagnosed with liver tumors. Mm. And the doctor told us that these tumors were around this artery that made the surgery very, very difficult. And only UCLA Medical Center, I'm in the San Francisco area, and we had to go to LA in order for them to do the surgery, but still the survival of the surgery was about 50%. Oh, and wow. Went in a huge downward spiral for, from there. About a week later, I attempted suicide. I um, I contemplated suicide a whole bunch during that time. And unfortunately I was in a bad situation. Now I'm not trying to um, lessen my culpability for the stupid things I did because I, I did them and this, I had no one to blame, but myself, but. No, this, I don't, I don't hear you doing that. What I hear is a man telling me about his world imploding. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and nowhere to go because you're basically trained you know, not only by your parents, and I'm trying to blame my parents, but that generation of World War II generation, my dad never told me that he had PTSD, but now becoming more of a, 
I don't want to say expert, but more knowledgeable about PTSD. I look back at my dad's life and I, I see that, you know, he had PTSD. Well, it was only in the in the 50s after the war that we began to talk about PTSD and they called it shell shock. And so it really didn't enter into mainstream conversation for a long time. I mean, the first DSM wasn't even published until 1980. So we're we're pretty new into this conversation. Right. And then that was always associated with war, right? Right. Associated with um, rape victims or, or children that have been abandoned or, or molested or, right. or, or anything. So every, everything's growing now and they're putting a lot of money into it. So, but at, at the time I left in 2011, at that particular time too, that they were not dealing with PTSD. So it, it was a, it was a shame. So one of my friends, well, I shouldn't say he was a, a it was a friend. We were friends, but I didn't know. He, he was, he had these own schemes. He had owed a lot of money and he asked me to do, do some things for him. And what I eventually ended up doing was stealing some drugs out of the evidence room and giving it to him to sell. And that's oh. what my violation was. And um, in my, in my right mind, that would have never happened. I mean, I, I had 27 years of not, <laughs> not doing anything wrong, but I, this is what an addicted mind does. I mean, you, you're not thinking straight. You're not yeah. thinking about right and wrong. You're, you I don't know if I was trying to please, or if I was, uh, I spent about three years in, in psychologists and psychiatrist's office since that time. And I, I, I don't know if I was trying to self implode, you know, just, just do away with everything or what, because of the suicide attempts too. Uh, so I can't explain. All I can say is it, it was my decisions. You know, I um, I don't want to blame him because I, I was the one that made those decisions. But, right. you know, um, I, I think drug because right now, like I said, I'm a drug counselor now and I see this and all the guys that uh, I live in a resident or work in a residential home. And you see the same kind of scenario that these guys are are doing stupid things just to, to survive. I mean, just this horrible mistake. So how long was it until you were caught with that theft? Was it pretty immediate or? Oh yeah. Like two months. Okay. It was, it was the first time that he gave um, the drugs to somebody else that, you know, he gave it to an informant and the informant, you know, obviously told. So those people that think there's that thin blue line, you know, there, there's no protection. It was my own agency that, that made sure that, you know, I got a 14 year sentence. So, so you were, you were immediately incarcerated then? Um, I, I went, yeah, they arrested me. And three days later I bailed out. I was fortunate enough to bail out. And it was during that time when, when I saw God's calling. So I bailed out. I was, you know, and I was just a basket case, you know, I mean, the, the indictment paper said, you know, life, you know, 10 years to life. And wow. I was just freaking out. And so I was at home one night about two weeks after I had bailed out and there was this phone call and I was afraid to answer the phone, but I answered the phone anyway. And it was this pastor. His name was pastor Jeff Kenny. He was a pastor of a local church, um, in new hope international. He's since retired though. And he said, Hey, I got your phone number from a friend of your father's that was worried about you. And I was just offering, you know, counseling and offered to come to our church if, if, if you want. I, I think that it would help you a lot. 
And in my mind, I know I didn't say anything, but in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, God, why is this guy calling me? You know, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I have nothing to do with the church. I don't want nothing to do with the church. And so I was blowing them off in my mind. But of course, my mom told me to always be nice to people. So I was really right. nice to him. He goes, hey, would you like to come to church? I said, you know, I'll, I'll think about it. I'll think about it. So he says, can I pray for you? And in my mind, I'm going, yeah, knock yourself out, you know, but sure. <laughs> so I didn't know it because I didn't know what the sinner's prayer was. He said the sinner's prayer. And so after he's done praying, he goes, do you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And I just said, sure. You know, I really wasn't, didn't mean it, but right. sure. So we hung up. He invited me, you know, again, he hung up or he invited me to the church. I hung up. I went back and sat down with my wife and my wife looks at me and goes, what's wrong? And I go, I. I don't know. I, I don't think nothing's wrong, you know, because she saw that I, I had a, the way I felt was a weight was lifted off my shoulders, right? Wow. I guess it was showing my face and she, she was born um, into a, a Catholic family and she practiced Catholicism her whole life, but she wasn't practicing because I wasn't, you know, so she never really talked to God about God to me because she knew that I was kind of adamant about it. You know, hey, I, I don't I don't believe in God. So she said, well, maybe this is what's missing in your life, right? And I thought about it. I go, well, you know, I, it can't hurt. Maybe it so is, next, yeah. So the next week, I, I went to the church. And um, now remember, I, I'm, I was a cop. I'm, I guess I'm technically at that time, I was still a cop. I, did, I waited a month to, to actually um, resign or retire. I was eligible for retirement that time. So we went to this church and so I kind of dressed up. I had a nice shirt on, nice, nice jeans, slacks and everything. We go there and there's, there's guys with tattoos. I mean, tattoos now are so common. Right. Even cops have, have are sleeved up. Right. But back then it wasn't so. And, and there was, was guys that were sleeved up. They had tattoos all their neck and the teardrops and the hat on backwards and shorts and stuff. And I thought to myself, Oh my gosh, what did I get myself into? You know, this, this is church. Looks like the bad crowd. Yeah. 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 But they came up to me and they hugged us and they welcomed us. It was, it was wonderful. I mean, I just felt at home there and I learned a lot of things there, but the, the sermons were great. So I, I continued to go to church. So during this time, my daughter was dealing with her medical issues and they wanted to do a biopsy of the tumor. So we were going to do it uh, on this certain date, but this Sunday before that, um, Pastor Jeff was doing the sermon and the Holy Spirit got a hold of him. And the Holy Spirit told him to stop. And he was in the middle of a sermon, right? And he just stopped. He looks over at me and the family. And he says, listen, I, I think we need to pray for Jennifer. Jennifer's her name. Jennifer's going in for a biopsy. And we, um, we want to pray for her. The entire congregation prayed for her. And um, I, I was crying. I couldn't, you know. I, at this point, I was, I was hoping there was a God, but I wasn't like, I was on the fence, right? right? I wasn't jumping in full board, but I was going to the men's um, uh, meetings and the Bible studies and stuff. So the, the, this, that week we went to the um, biopsy, the biopsy went smoothly. And then a couple weeks later, um, the doctor called us in and we went to him and what I went with her because I had the time then. And doctor said, well, you know, we need to do another scan. So we said, okay. So they did another scan. We came back a few hours later and the doctor put up the scan, you know, on that lighted plate. Right. 
And um, he showed both. He goes, I don't know what to tell you. You know, which shows normal liver tissue. And then I was mad. I mean, I was, cause I thought they misdiagnosed it, you know? Could and, you see the difference between yes. the two scans? Yeah. The one that showed all the dark spots on the liver that were the tumors. Right. And the other one was clean, but, but you see, I thought they misdiagnosed. So I was so angry. I, I yelled at the guy. I mean, I feel so bad. And he goes, no, 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 here, here, here's a, a report from UCLA Medis medical center showing that these are liver tumors. So at that point it hit me, it hit me that God had healed her and it was so weird. It was so calming. I, all I can describe is like the Holy spirit came down upon me. Right. And just, just fill me in. At that point, I believed in a God and I believed in a kind, loving God. You know, it was, it was Absolutely. very, strange. and she's been healed ever since. And it's just been, it's been amazing, you know? So, so at this that, point you're out on bail and yeah. how long until you, um, until you went through a trial and all of that? Uh, two years, but I didn't go to trial. I, I just pled out for the, what I did, you know, um, I felt that, uh, I did it. Well, why am I going to fight it? You know, there's no, no reason for it. Cause I, you know, I did wrong. So I, I, I pled out, they gave me 14 years and sent me immediately to jail. Um, I was in the Santa Clara County, which is San Jose County jail for a year in solitary confinement in a suicide cell. That was the worst experience of my life. I mean, you're, you're alone in this tiny cell. There's, there's nothing The lights are on 24 seven because they want to look at you, make sure you're not committing suicide uh -huh. and it's just nothing to do nothing. And, but I read the Bible, I, I read, um, other books and I try to keep my mind occupied. But I, in, in my heart, I, take me to that moment though, where you go from, you know, I was Mr. Police officer. I was investigator. I was all of these things. And all of a sudden you're on the other side of that gate. What is that moment? Like I can't even describe it. It's horrible. It's, it's just, and knowing that you did it now, if, if it was one of those things where I was innocent, you know, be different, but I knew it. And I, I was taking my lumps because I, I knew that I had done wrong and there's no justification for it, but it was scary, you know, cause I had heard what goes on in prison. And, um, I was warned, you know, to, to not hang out with this crowd, not hang out with that crowd. And my intention was just to go to a church, right. Just to, to hang out at the church and then everything would be all right. Now, federal prison is a little, a little bit different than state prison. State prison is very violent. Um, the medium security federal prison is also violent, but luckily they sent me to a low security and they sent me to Fort Worth, Texas. But I was still, I was a year there, there in Santa Clara. And it was just, it's just horrible how, you see, I didn't know these things as a cop, but it was just horrible how the, the criminal justice system treats people because being in a, a cell all by yourself, every three days you got out for one hour to either, either shower or go out on the roof for one hour. Unreal. That, that was winter. And they wouldn't give me a sweatshirt and wouldn't give me a jacket. So it was like, I'm not going out there. It's freezing, you know, but every three days you get out for one hour. It was, it was horrible. And it, it's amazing how people don't leave there and become more psychotic or more angry at the system or just more mentally ill, you know? And so, um, 
after I got sentenced, that that was after I pled. They they put me in as soon as I pled because they were fearful that I would leave. I don't know where they got that idea, but um, I got sent to Fort Worth, Texas. And I was really upset about that too, because they promised to keep me in California to where my family could visit. But they right. sent me to Fort Worth, Texas, but it was actually God. I mean, when you look back at it, you know, it's, it's funny what we want and what God wants. Yeah. So we get there and right off the bat, I meet another um, ex-police officer. There was like eight ex-police officers. First of all, I never knew that cops were going to prison at such a high rate, but there was a bunch of cops in there. So I, I meet this really nice guy. The next day I'm there, I, I go to um, the, the chapel. There's a cop, ex-cop working in there. And um, the, the chaplain goes, hey, you know, well, we got a spot available. You want a job? <laughs> yeah. Sure. You know, so, so I got a safe place to work, right? And because all the inmates have to work. Right. Unless you're medically cleared not to. So Tyndale... Um, uh, theological seminary came in and they were doing classes there. So I was so on fire at that time for God that I decided, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to get a degree. So I ended up getting my master's degree in theology um, with emphasis on counseling. And I got it all there. So, I mean, God knew what he's doing, right? That's amazing. This is a longer story, but I'll I'll really keep it short. But um, there was an LA cop that, um, was transferred in after I had been there. And what had happened was he was, he, he got like an 18 year sentence for some drug violations too. But what had happened is while he was incarcerated, he he healed of his PTSD. And it was from some of the teachings from Elijah house. Right. Um, and and there's, there's got good. I mean, I, I learned a lot from their books and from their videos. And so we, I was, I was going to secular counseling there at the prison for the PTSD. And I, I was, I was doing this on the, at the same time, but he taught me how the, how Elijah house heals, right. And how it heals your trauma. So after about four months or so, I never experienced another um, symptom, a negative symptom of PTSD. I, I was just healed. It was just tremendous. Was tremendous. And, it all made sense then everything was coming together what god was doing in my life you know and then the chaplain there allowed me to or me and him but then he got transferred to a minimum security but we were counseling other guys there and these were mostly child porn offenders okay because the, the lows are are 60 percent of um child offenders now they didn't necessarily touch kids but they looked at the child porn right and that's where I learned how our, it, it's, I don't even know how to explain it, but that as you're, as you're being raised, everything that happens to you as you're being raised, what your parents taught you, what you went through, your, your traumas, your, your overwhelming events, how they affect your behavior later, right? All, all these guys were, were raped by an uncle or a father. Um, they were all beaten. They were all neglected. Hmm. And, just and there was a progression of of their their crimes, right? Yeah. And so I, I kind of learned about why people do the things they do, which cops don't know about, right? Cops know that it's a crime. It, it's either black or white. They just deal with the result, right? That's right. And and they they don't have compassion, I think, because they don't know. I mean, if I would have known, 
like there was this one guy there at 14 years old. Um, his mom died. They, her mom and dad heroin addicts. And at 14 years old, his dad was shooting him up with heroin to get him hooked so his dad could have someone to to get high with. And then he was forcing his 14-year-old son to go out and sell heroin to make money for their, their habit. So you think to yourself, this guy could have never made it on his own, right? Because he's right. he's destined for that kind of life, you know, with, without anything interceding. And if there was guys like that that I had run into, you know, I, I would hope that I would have been more compassionate, but I really, I doubt it because. Right. But then sitting on the other side, your empathy grows yeah. a hundredfold, right? Yeah. Yeah. So now, now you see it, you know, I talked to gang members. I talked that they were really cool with me. You know, there were certain things I couldn't do. Like I couldn't work out with them. I couldn't, you know, um, go in the yard with them. Why they is were, that? Well, cause I was a cop. Okay. You know, so if you're a cop or an informant, they will not talk to you. But it was weird working in the chapel. I had all different races coming and talking to us, right? Because normally in prison, the white guys hang out with white guys, you know, blacks hang out with blacks, Mexicans, Mexicans, Spanish, Spanish, you know, and so on. But because I worked in the chapel, I got a wide variety of these guys. And um, I heard a lot of stories and it just, and this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to learn more about PTSD. So I focused on the PTSD. And so I got, when I got under 10 years um, to go, they transferred me to Lompoc here near Santa Barbara. Lompoc, it was a camp. And a camp is a cool place because there's no doors, there's no locks, there's no bars. Okay. Your, your minimum security risk, right? So I, I got some good jobs. Um, I worked in the, in the um, low prison cleaning up the, the areas for the guards and for the secretaries and administrative people. Uh-huh. And then I actually got a job driving, you know, I was driving inmates to their bus stop. You know, when they leave, they go to the bus stop or sometimes right. they go to the bus stop, airport, pick them up and come. I mean, I was driving off in a car, you know, it, so it, it was, it was really good. And then I got kind of mad too, though. I went to Lompoc because there's a, there was a prison closer to my house. But then I, I saw what God was doing again. So when I got to Lompoc, they told me about a, uh, this Allen Hancock Community College came in and they did a two-year uh, drug addiction counseling deal where you can get your counseling certificate. So I thought, okay, that's what God wants me to do. I'm going to go ahead and do it. So you could do it at the camp? Yeah, all the training, the two-year program was at the camp. You just couldn't do your practicum there. So, okay. So then, um, so I got all that done and then I went for my, um, doctorate in, in Christian counseling. And that's when my doctoral thesis was on, um, PTSD and law enforcement. And that's what made me write this book, um, on, um, how God heals us from our trauma. So who did you do the doctorate through? It was through Liberty, um, okay. Bible college. Yeah. And, um, so then at the end, I think it was, was this was 19. Yeah, I think it was 2019. They sent me to um, Sheridan, Oregon, where I was to go through the drug program. So if I got to the drug program, I would get a year off my sentence if I successfully completed it. But then as soon as I got to the drug pro- program in, in 20, that's when COVID hit. And um, it, it was just amazing. So I still technically had a little over three years to go on my sentence. But they were letting people out with pre-existing um, histories. 
and they, I was the eighth guy to leave there and, and go on home confinement. So technically, I'm still in custody, but I'm on home confinement. So I have certain okay. guidelines I got to follow. I can work. I can go to church. I, I can go to the gym, but I can't do anything else. So when I got home, I decided to do my practicum. For um, I, I took an internship at this uh, male recovery center, um, a live-in recovery center. And then when I completed that, they ended up giving me a job. So now I'm actually working there. And um, I finished my book and it's it's out to design now. It should be available um, November 1st of this year. So I, I can see it, it, I can see God's hands in, in everything that happened. It, it's just amazing. You know, he closed doors that I want I wanted to go through. I wanted to go to a prison closer to home. God said, no, you're going here because this is what he said. Because the other prison I found out later, they don't they don't have any educational, you know, you, you couldn't do anything there. So it's just amazing what he had to do. And I, I can't stop telling my story because I never believed in God. And here, look what he's do, doing. And right. I the arc of your story could have been totally different, though. Had have you turned to anger or continued in your mm -hmm. addiction or, you know, any number of things It could have been the trajectory of that had many different possibilities. It, that hinge was when Pastor Jeff called me that day. If he hadn't called me that day and he had visited me and he told me that he, he doesn't even know why he called me. He, he said he never he never does that, right? And he just the Holy Spirit told him, hey, I'm going to call this guy. And if it wasn't for that, yeah, I would have been bitter, angry. I, I might have completed a su suicide. I, I don't know, you know. But the, the amazing thing is that through all this, I can still have peace and joy. You know, I, if, even in prison, some guys would come out and say, hey, how come you can smile in here? I mean, this is a you know, this is a horrible place and you're still walking around smiling. And and when I gave sermons, I, I gave them about hope and I gave them about, you know, PTSD and to, to find that, um, that root cause of your depression to find out. And it, it was just amazing. If my friends would, would know that I was up there preaching, they would never believe me. They would have never. Right. So it's amazing what he'd done in my life. And um, my goal in the future is to Go to police departments now. It's going to take a while because they don't, you know, that got to earn the trust back, the right? Right. I have to show them that I'm not, I don't know, just faking it. That that I, I, it's true. But I truly believe that all this stuff that's going on in the world right now, or at least the United States, with trusting cops and in the um, perceived brutality, all these things, is all hinged on the cops' prior promise, right? Because mm -hmm. we we all behave in how we believe. Right. And if we believe certain things about certain races or, or just certain socioeconomical status, you know, people yeah. in that area, we're going to behave in a truly different matter, a manner than we would normally. And I truly don't believe that there's a lot. I don't want to, racism. I know there's a lot of bias, but I've never met a cop that went out and said, oh, we're going to go out and beat up a black guy, a Hispanic guy or you know, there was, there was never that, but I've seen a lot of guys that had fear in certain situations, you know, and they kind and of want to react out. in that fear. Yeah. Yeah. So I hope to make a difference there. I just, I, I just hope that someday that they can, um, you know, forgive me and, and know that, that that wasn't the real me and we all make mistakes and 
What do you think it'll take for people to not believe this was just a jail time conversion, um, but that they really see, you know, real substantive change? What do you think it'll take for people to trust that? I think it'll take time. Um, right, I'm right in the middle of um, getting credentialed as a chaplain and through the Assemblies of God Church. And so I've been kind of putting out feelers through friends of friends to the police departments and the fire departments around here saying, I'd like to, I'd like to be a first responder chaplain. And they all said, Hey, you're going to have to, to show us, you know, three or four years in um, that you're still that same person. Mm-hmm. I'm just not trying to, you know, finagle something, but I think after time, I think that part of my uh, recovery is also through helping. It's just like the, the 12 steps, you know, there's a step that says you, you help. And I truly believe that in helping others, we help ourselves and we can stay um, on the right track. Yeah. And I truly believe that if we continue to do God's will, you know, we'll reap what we sow. If, if we sow uh, blessings, you know, to other people, we're going to receive them and, and vice versa. And that's what the, the whole book is about is, is getting back to back in, in fellowship with God, you know, getting back in his will because I truly believe that our negative emotions, I like to call it like a dashboard, you know, on the dashboard of a car, the light comes on, the red light comes on. That means something's wrong, you know, and you better deal with it. Otherwise, right. it's going to be a catastrophic failure. And it's the same with us. So when we, this hate builds up in us or, or this, this um, uncontrolled anger builds, God is telling us, hey, you, you got to deal with this issue. And if you don't deal with it, then something bad's going to happen. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Inside or self-harm or something. So uh, t- tell me about your family. Did your family stay together while you were in prison? What happened there? Thank God. Yes. Um, my wife saw the emotional decline over a series of years. I mean, she was telling me for six years to go get help. But, you know, the, again, the police culture, she knew that she couldn't force me because right. then I would only get angry. You know, and if I get angry, I would lash out. And um, our relationship was really good. But it, if she pushed and pushed and pushed, it, it probably wouldn't have survived. So she did the right thing by just suggesting it. But right now, I feel bad for her because she is taking a lot of guilt on herself for not, like, calling the, the, the department that I work for mm. or calling in a psychologist, you know, to, but you see, co- psychologists don't understand either. You know, they don't understand that first responder that culture, culture. Right. So, so when I was out on bail, another friend of mine, um, I, I owe my life to him too. His name is Nick Turkovich. He guided me towards a counselor that was a cop and that understood all this. And Nick is actually the head of the West coast post-traumatic stress retreat. And that's just for first responders. So it's, it's interesting how these things intertwine, you know, absolutely. And um, it's, it's just amazing, but no, thank God. I hurt my kids. I, I, I shame them. I embarrassed them. I treated them really bad in my probation report. I'm ashamed to even say this, but the probation writes a report on what, what you're like, you know, to give to the judge. And my daughters basically said that I didn't want to come over to dad's house anymore because I didn't know which dad was there, the dad that raised us or the new jerk dad that, that he had become. They, they mm-hmm. saw the emotional changes in me and they were afraid to say anything and afraid to come over because I would just 
scream and yell or, and I was cussing up a storm at that time, but thank God that they stayed with me. And now I, I'm just rebuilding my relationship with my grandkids, you know, and that's, that's the most wonderful thing for me is, um, my, both my daughters got married while I was inside. My dad passed away when I was inside, couldn't go, uh, three grandkids were born, but wasn't able to be there. So now I got a lot of making up to do and, um, but I'm having fun doing it. Yeah. So, Are they local? Do you, do you get yes. to see them? Yeah. Yeah. So a matter of fact, my granddaughter, I just babysat her for just a little bit today before this. That so, is amazing. Nice. Well, and yeah. it's amazing that this, this event, this um, catastrophic virus gave you a, a blessing out of this mess and that you were mm. able to able to be released and, and be able to be with your family at least. Yeah, I, I truly believe it. Again, yeah, I mean, it's all God's doing because, you know, I, I prayed every day, please, God, let me get out of here. Let, you know, let, let something I put in, I appealed, my, my appeal went nowhere, you know. But then I truly believe that with, if you're doing the right things, I, I think God blesses you. And that's, that's what happened. You know, he, he, I, I, my flesh caused me to, to go the direction I did. The, God was not involved in that. But as Romans in, 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 chapter eight says, a, he will make things happen for the good for those that love him. And mm-hmm. I think he saw that I have an avenue. I hope I have an avenue to help others, not only through this book, but through what I'm doing now. So I believe that he allowed me to go through this so I could have the training to, to, to help the kingdom. Absolutely. And your perspective is invaluable because not only were you part of that first responder Mm. culture, but now you've also been through the, been through the penal system and, and seen that side of it also. So tell me real quick, I know we're, we're going a little bit long here, but your story is um, so compelling. Tell me a little bit about the moment when you found out you were going to get to come home. What, what is that moment like? Oh, I mean, you just fall down to your knees and say, thank you. You know, it's, it's, it was just amazing. Cause again, I, I was hoping, but three years early is, is incredible. It, it's just, it, it's not heard of, right. It, it just doesn't happen. It, but I think they also knew that I was not um, go, going to be another reoffender, Right. Mm-hmm. But, but still it, yeah. I, I, I'm a loss for words because I know this COVID thing has been a horrible, horrible thing for the, the, this, the world, yeah. but it's been a real blessing to me and my family, but I, I have no words for it, but just it, it, it's, it can't be anything else, but an act of God. It, it can't be. Yeah. Know, the, why me? I mean, I wasn't the sickest guy there. There was, there's guys on um, dialysis there and stuff that I went home before them. So uh, there's just no. There's no explanation for it, just this thankfulness. Well, and I can't imagine, but that you would feel like every moment is precious now and every oh. every minute that you get on this side, that is a, just a gift. You know, people don't realize how important family is. You know, I worked a lot. I mean, I worked overtime. I worked a lot. I worked Christmas sometimes. You know, I miss birthdays. I wasn't there maybe for all their baseball games and stuff, but you just think, oh, I, I'm working for the family. I, I, I'm going to do this for the benefit of the family. But then when you're taken away from the family, it, you realize, wow, you know, it, spending time with your family is the most important thing in life over making money over anything. 
you know, and I'm just so grateful that they're all healthy and they're all wonderful people and they didn't do the stupid thing. They're not going to do stupid things right. like I did, but I, that's, that's the biggest lesson I learned besides knowing God is that family is the most important thing and, and don't, don't throw that away. Yeah. You know, cher- cherish every minute you get to spend with your kids and your wife and your, your family. Yeah. Well, thank you for um, sharing that story so thoroughly. I'm just so struck by, like you said, um, the the hand of God over the whole story, even in the in the times when you felt like doors were closing. And and we can truly say God is good all the time, mm-hmm. even in the midst of even in the midst of the darkness. So the book is called Christ Centered Healing of Trauma, and we'll see it out this winter hopefully. And uh, when it comes out, we will re-air this so we can make sure and and tell your story again. And I would love to love to be a part of, of your journey. So thank you so much for sharing your story. And uh, and I just wish you every every good blessing. Thank you. Thank you. And bless you for doing this podcast. I know it's helping a lot of people. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts today. You can follow Jill on social media on Facebook and Instagram, JillRiley.author, and Twitter, JillRileyAuthor. To contact Jill, email Jill at JillRiley.org.